Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by our deputy editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about the latest news affecting general practice. Coming up, we're talking about a practice in Surrey that's set to make three salaried GPs redundant and asking what this tells us about changes in primary care. We'll also be discussing the GP workforce, in particular the falling number of GP partners, and we're talking about GP retention after NHS England announced the end of two key retention schemes. Our good news story this week highlights those GPs and others from the world of primary care who receive New Year honours. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. So Nick, this is our first news podcast of 2024. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. First off today, I thought we should talk about GP redundancies, which is not something you expect to ever really come across, given that we spend so much time talking about the massive shortage of GPs on this podcast. So this is a story that emerged earlier this week, and it's about a practice in Surrey. What exactly is going on? Uh, GP practice in Surrey, the Glen Lynn Medical Centre, which is a large practice with more than 20,000 patients, has decided to make three out of its 11 current salaried GPs redundant. The BBC reported that all 11 salaried GPs at the practice had been offered voluntary redundancy as part of a process that the practice hopes will reduce its salaried GP workforce to just eight. It means a a more than one quarter reduction in the number of salaried GPs it employs in total. As as you mentioned, it's a surprising move at a time when in the main, practices are reporting vacancies that they can't fill. And nationally, we spend a lot of time reporting on the shortage of GPs, the fact that the full-time equivalent workforce has shrunk over the last eight years or so. But there's another element that makes this really interesting and worrying development for general practice because of the explanation that the practice has given for its decision. So a, a statement on the practice website from its managing director says that the practice decided to make changes to its practice team because of the introduction of new ways of working. It mentions in part a rise in online requests the practice now receives and patients' preference in some cases for phone or online appointments. But it also talks about the introduction of many new roles at the practice and lists a number of roles that have come into general practice with funding available through the Additional Roles Reimbursement Scheme or the ARRS. And the practice says that bringing in roles such as pharmacists, first contact practitioners for musculoskeletal conditions, advanced nurses and paramedics, and those are all roles covered by the ARRS, and adopting changes outlined in the primary care recovery plan published by NHS England last year, have changed how the practice works and ultimately led to this decision to change how the practice is staffed and specifically to make these GP roles redundant. A few months ago, we ran a story about GPs being out of work because practices couldn't afford to hire them. And one of the suggestions at that time from some doctors was that the huge pot of funding, £1.4 billion in 2023-24 for ARRS staff in general practice, money that can't be used to recruit GPs or practice nurses, was driving practices towards a GP light model. Now, this Surrey practice hasn't said anything about not being able to afford GPs, and they very much set this out as a positive move, which is about becoming more efficient and making sure patients can see the health professional they need and that they're absolutely going to offer the same level of service that they currently do. But 
the explicit link between reducing the GP workforce within the general practice team and leaning more heavily on other healthcare professionals to deliver a general practice service is unsurprisingly something that's raised a lot of eyebrows. Yeah, I mean, there's been a huge outcry about all of this on social media, hasn't there, with GPs really concerned about what all this means. What has the BMA, the LMC and others had to say about this? The chair of the BMA England GP committee, Dr Katie Bramall-Stainer, posted on Twitter or X that there are now overwhelming numbers of practices unable to afford locum cover, where doctors are having to cross cover, meaning that existing staff have to cover gaps in their workforce. And she said practices often simply can't afford to invest in expanding GP numbers and that this underfunding and lack of financial muscle to hire GPs had left thousands of GPs in underemployment right now. So here we are in a general practice workforce crisis, which we sort of mentioned earlier. Um, And according to the head of the BMA GP Committee for England, thousands of GPs are actually underemployed, unable to find enough work because practices can't afford to hire them. So her comments really echo the story I mentioned just now from last year about GPs being out of work because practices couldn't afford to hire them and the potential influence that that funding ring fence for additional roles staff has had on that. Dr. Brownstainer went on to list a series of points that basically set out her vision of general practice and how it should look. And those points are really a warning against moving towards a model with fewer GPs. It's a it's a long list of 20 points and I won't run through them all. But the first is that general practice should prioritise expert generalist GPs over skill mix, which gives you a pretty clear sense of where the BMA stands on, on the issue we're talking about. Some of the others are things like quality over quantity, continuity over access, things like the need to prioritise longer term goals for patient care rather than short-term quaff targets. She also mentions the need to prioritise face-to-face care, which should be something that that lands well with a lot of politicians, and highlights the value of care based on relationships rather than data dashboards, for example. And these are all things she feels general practice is built on that is at risk of losing. I wrote a while ago about Dr. Bramalstainer's view that the ARRS should be flipped on its head so that instead of undifferentiated patients seeing additional roles staff, they always see a GP first, even for something apparently minor, and that it should be then for a, a GP, the expert generalist, to decide whether another member of the multidisciplinary team could help, and if so, which one? And her response to this issue is very much of a piece with that, that GPs should remain the core of general practice, and any model that reduces their role in general practice is clearly not the way she thinks should go. Apart from the BMA reaction, we had some comment from Surrey and Sussex LMC, which um, covers the area the practice making GPs redundant is in. They told us that they'd been contacted by a number of the GPs offered voluntary redundancy. The LMC also said its view was that if ARRS funding had been made available to practices to spend on staff, including GPs, which is the policy of the GP committee of the BMA thinks should happen, then that would have delivered better value for money. The Doctors Association UK commented too, and their reaction was just that it was alarming to see GPs being made redundant in the middle of a workforce crisis and that they felt moves away from a GP-focused model in general practice simply reflected long-term underfunding of general practice as a whole. Practice finances uh, are obviously, uh, you know, potentially something that's coming into 
play here. I mean, you mentioned those tweets from Katie Bramall-Stainer. The BMA is currently asking practice managers to complete a really in-depth survey about the state of their practice finances, which they want to use in current contract negotiations. And and in that series of tweets you mentioned there, Dr. Bramall-Stainer tweeted the early results of that survey, which she says has figures from 10% of England's practices and shows that contractor income, so GP partner income, practice profits essentially, have dropped by an average of 20% over one year, which is a staggering drop. I mean, that's a massive real life pay cut GP partners are experiencing. Um, We know that costs have risen significantly over the last couple of years and practice income is broadly stagnant. I mean, people who listened to last week's podcast when I spoke to Andy Powell and Tommy Perkins, Dr. Tommy Perkins from Medics Money, will understand all of this. And I do urge anyone who hasn't listened to that to have a listen. It's a really good overview of the state of general practice finance at the minute, which also has lots of kind of good practical advice for practices on how to deal with this. But one of the things that came up in that conversation is that we face a real risk of practice income starting to fall over the coming year or so. Obviously, you know, I haven't seen the results of that BMA survey, but I expect a fairly hefty chunk of that fall in profits is related to to rising costs. There is a real concern that income could start to fall as well. We're seeing integrated care boards being asked to slash their spending at the minute, which is leading to all sorts of cuts and caps on local enhanced services. That obviously has a massive impact for practices, particularly around staff. I know lots of practices that fund certain staff posts via the income they make from local enhanced services. So if funding is cut in that area, many practices are going to have to make some really difficult decisions. You've talked about the ARRS there and the fact that the BMA would like to see changes to that to include GPs on that scheme. I mean, last week, we also ran a story about a petition that's calling for GPs, including locum GPs, and practice nurses to be included in the ARRS, which has been signed by coming up to 4,000 people now. That petition makes the point that excluding nurses and GPs from the scheme is actually contributing to their shortages. Just to explain that, the ARRS provides reimbursement for all of those roles um, it covers across a PCN up to a financial limit based on the patient population. And it's via the PCN, so the staff they employ will be shared across the practices in that network. But basically, these are staff that cost the practice nothing. So you can see that if a practice is struggling financially and looking carefully at where it can cut costs, and if it feels it can provide a service that patients will find acceptable with less GPs and more additional roles, that's something they may well be looking at. I mean, obviously, if funding for GPs was covered by the ARRS, then perhaps they wouldn't make those decisions and stick with a model that's focused on doctors because there's lots of implications, obviously, for moving to a GP-like model, as, as you called it there which is built around using more additional roles. For example, you know, around training and supervision that the GPs in the practice will have to provide. Practice with very few GPs and lots of other healthcare professionals. Obviously, those GPs are going to be spending a significant amount of their time supervising and debriefing and managing those staff and more time doing that than they would in a more traditional setup, as well as obviously taking on the risk for those staff. And inevitably, that means spending less time seeing patients. I mean, is that what GPs actually want to be doing? Obviously, there's always been an element of that in a GP's role, but probably not to the extent that we're talking about here. But, you know, we're talking about changes to the ARRS to include GPs. But do you think if there are no changes, do you think we could see more practices moving to the boards this model with fewer GPs than they've perhaps previously employed? We don't know exactly how widespread the trend towards a so-called gp light model, the idea that practices are really reducing the number of GPs they employ and using additional role staff to fill the gaps, is as things stand. 
But obviously, the example we've been talking about today, the stories we've reported previously about practices not being able to afford GPs, and the comment from the BMA that thousands of GPs are underemployed all suggest that it's a significant issue. We know that practices are under massive financial pressure. Um, And as you mentioned earlier, the BMA has suggested partners' income has fallen by more than 20% over the past year. And practices have told us they can't afford to hire GPs and that they feel the fact that the ARRS makes a huge pot of cash available for other staff is driving practices towards a model that leans more towards the multidisciplinary team with fewer GPs. The BMA GP committee is going to be pushing for a significant uplift in funding in the coming financial year, an uplift to overall contract funding that covers the rising cost practices are facing. If that comes, it could give practices the funding they need to maintain their GP workforce, whether or not the ARRS rules are relaxed. If GP practices don't get the kind of contract uplift they need to cover the massive cost pressures, or the government argues it doesn't have enough money to offer that, then pushing for GPs and practice nurses to be covered by the ARS might be part of the solution. But I mean, ultimately, if if the government and NHS England don't offer a significant contract boost or relax ARRS rules, then I think the outcome could be more significant than practices just drifting towards a GP-like model. It's probably more likely in that scenario that we'll see a move towards some form of industrial action and potentially an increase in practices handing back their contracts, for example. The GP committee chair has been urging people to join the BMA just this week. And the union is actively, has been for months, updating members' details to make sure it's in a really strong position if it comes to balloting the professional forms of action. I mean, hopefully that's not where we end up in the coming months. We're getting into the real crunch time now for negotiations over next year's contract. So we'll probably find out one way or another in the next couple of months. One other factor in all of this is that the DDRB has been asked to make recommendations for the coming financial year on GP income, including an uplift for partners for the first time since the five-year contract started in 2019. DDRB advice is likely to take a while yet to appear, so it might have to be applied retrospectively. But that could also be a factor in determining the financial position for practices next year. Ultimately, ARRS money could have a a role to play in determining whether or not practices continue to drift towards that GP light model. But it's probably not the only factor that counts. Obviously, waiting to see what comes up in the contract that the BMA and NHS England are currently discussing. So the contract deal for 2024-25 is going to be really crucial in seeing what happens next and where general practice goes over the coming year. It could be quite an explosive year, I think. Moving on to a topic that's very related to what we've been talking about, let's have a chat about the GP workforce and GP partner numbers more specifically. Last week, the latest workforce data for England was published, which takes us up to November 2023. The good news, sort of, is that there was a very slight increase in the number of full-time equivalent fully qualified GPs in England during the 12 months to November last year. There were 27,483 full-time equivalent fully qualified GPs in November 2023, an increase of 91 compared with November 2022, which is a 0.3% rise. However, the number of GPs remains well below figures for September 2015 when comparable records began and when the then Health Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, pledged to increase the workforce by 5,000. There are now 1,881 fewer full-time equivalent GPs than there were at that point. 
But the really bad news is that the number of GP partners has continued to fall despite that rise in the overall workforce. There were 357 fewer full-time equivalent GP partners in November 2023 compared with a year earlier. That was a 2% drop. In headcount terms, the number of GP partners also fell by 2%. But the really staggering figure here is since 2015, we have lost 5,398 full-time equivalent GP partners, a massive fall of 25%. Obviously, such a huge fall in partner numbers is a real concern because these are the people who run GP practices. If the number goes down, it means increasing amount of work falls on the shoulders of those who are left. And we know practices are becoming more and more complex. I think we've spoken before about running the risk of entering a vicious cycle of more and more partners leaving because the job becomes too stressful. And these figures suggest we are starting to see that now. Also, it's important to mention that the partnership model is really cost effective for the NHS because GP partners are so invested in their businesses and communities. They often work way above the hours they're contracted for, which is obviously not a good thing. But they're also invested in ensuring things work really well in their communities and that their patients are able to remain well because that reduces practice workload. And all of these things often lead to local innovations that would arguably be really hard to achieve with another way of doing things. So that's the stuff about the latest data. But Nick, just before that data set of data came out, you were looking at GP partner numbers across England. What did you find there? So I looked at a couple of things around GP partners, partly trying to understand how the proportion of GPs who are partners has changed over the period we've got comparable figures for. So it's over the last eight years, roughly. And also looking at which areas have the highest and lowest proportions of GPs who are partners, which areas are losing partners fastest at the moment, and looking for any areas that might be bucking the national trend and actually growing the proportion of their GPs who are partners. And there are some of those. What the figures show is that on a national level, the proportion of GPs who are in partnership roles has fallen really significantly over the past eight years. I mean, that's the figure you touched on just now, although I'm looking at it not in numbers terms, but as a proportion of the total. So just to be really clear about why this matters, you know, some of what you just talked about, partners are the GPs who run practices, who hold the contracts, who employ salaried and locum GPs. They own or rent premises for GP services to operate from. And that the partnership model actually predates the NHS itself. And the freedom it's traditionally offered practices to innovate and advocate for patients is seen as a, a really big factor in the success of UK general practice over the years. But numbers of partners have been going down really fast in the past decade or so, whether you look at the headcount or the full-time equivalent workforce figures. And just to explain those two terms, by headcount GPs, we mean the actual number of individual GPs, irrespective of working hours, whereas full-time equivalent figures provide a workforce figure totaled up from the hours each GP works. So some might count as less than one and others might count as more than one. But in September 2015 which is basically where comparable figures go back to, partners made up around three quarters of the full-time equivalent GP workforce in England and 68% of headcount GPs. So way in the majority. But by last September, September 2023, um, just 59% of the full-time equivalent workforce and 52% of headcount GPs were partners. So in terms of headcount GPs, we've gone from around seven in 10 being partners to just over half being partners in just the past eight years. And in full-time equivalent terms, we've gone from three quarters of the workforce being partners to just three-fifths in that period. Looking regionally, 
a handful of areas still have a substantial majority of GPs who are partners. But in other areas, it's now below half. And although about a third of ICBs saw a slight increase in the proportion of partners in their full-time equivalent workforce over the past year, most areas saw a drop. And in some areas, in just one year, there was a drop of up to four percentage points in the proportion of GPs who are partners. So some real pockets of rapid decline. These rapid changes, they reflect wider changes in general practice. Over the past decade, the number of GP practices in England has fallen dramatically as well as practices merge or close and form larger units. And although some large practices may have large numbers of partners, Others may simply have a couple of partners and a larger proportion of salaried or locum GPs. And I think it's, it's probably fair to guess that in some of those areas where you see like a really big, like a 4% drop in the proportion of GPs of partners in, in a single year, it wouldn't be surprising if you found that the, those areas you'd also seen a burst of closures or, or mergers in the, in the past year. But, but these changes also reflect the growing pressure on general practice. And although many GPs continue to really enjoy and value partnership roles, for many, the strain and the risk attached to the role, whether we're talking about the workload pressure itself and the clinical pressure or the pressures around things like premises, ownership and so on, has just become too much. And, and that's particularly the case in areas where practices are struggling to recruit and retain. NHS England introduced that new to partnership scheme, which people listening to this may have heard about, and that provided golden hello payments for clinicians to take up partnership roles. That scheme ran from the 1st of April 2020 to the 31st of March 2023. And those payments were for any clinician becoming a partner, not just GPs. But these figures suggest that scheme has had very little impact, don't they? Yeah, a review of GP partnerships commissioned by the government warned in 2019 that without change, partnerships will die. And after that review, the new partnership payment scheme was brought in to offer £20,000 golden hello payments to GPs and other healthcare staff taking on partnership roles in general practice for the first time. We revealed last year that over the scheme's lifetime, more than 2,800 GPs benefited from financial support for taking on partnership roles. So perhaps without that, numbers of partners would be even lower than they already are. So, I mean, you could argue that the scheme has had an impact. It's just that it's been lost in the overall erosion of partnership roles nationally. And just to be clear, that number, 2,800 GPs who benefited from the scheme, that is the vast majority of people overall who benefited from the scheme. Although, as you mentioned, the scheme was open to staff of other types of practice nurses and so on. But partners are often struggling because of a number of factors. Finances have been increasingly tight for practices. And as partner numbers fall, there's a growing risk for any partner of being left as the so-called last person standing, where all the other partners have quit and suddenly one partner's left with responsibility for a building or a lease and the contract. And people often choose options other than partnership because as a salaried or locum GP, it's easier to control your workload. That's a thing that's talked about actively at the moment, that locum careers are a, a choice that offers you the opportunity to control your workload in a way that partnership doesn't. And, uh, you know, as, as a locum, you can reasonably say, or, or, you know, potentially as a salaried GP, although I think probably less so up to, a, up to a point, you can reasonably say, I'm employed for a certain number of hours, whereas for partners, 
work stops when everything that needs doing at the practice has been completed and not before, which is why many, particularly in the current environment with you know heavy workload and all the rest of it, find themselves working really, really long hours. As numbers of partners dwindle, as you mentioned, there's, there's a sense of a vicious cycle. There's a real risk that it spirals because it's not as easy to spread the strain between fellow partners. What does all this mean for the future of the partnership model, do you think? I mean, we both mentioned some of the real benefits of it and it's kind of hard to imagine general practice without the partnership model, but is that a possibility? The BMA GP committee for England says the GMS contract, which underpins the partnership model, isn't broken, but it's just being broken by underfunding. So really the future of partnerships and maybe of general practice as a whole, or certainly general practice as we know it, depends on securing the kind of step change in funding that general practice needs, which which is going to start with what comes after the five-year contract right now. We spoke earlier about some of the advantages of the partnership model, which is very much tied in with the idea of continuity, long-term patient-doctor relationships, cradle-to-grave care. I don't think there's much doubt that with better funding and support, that model is still hugely valuable. But we know also that various political parties have questioned it for different reasons in recent years. So there's a real challenge now as this five-year contract package comes to an end to secure the future of the partnership model, as well as the future sort of funding for general practice. And ultimately, unless there's money and the will to do that, partnerships will continue to be eroded. If you're interested in exploring data relating to the GP workforce in more detail, don't forget GP Online subscribers have access to our GP Insight Workforce Tracker. The tracker looks at a range of measures relating to the GP workforce in England, including patients per GP, the proportion of GPs who are partners and the proportion of GPs aged over 55, alongside data relating to workload and patient satisfaction. The tracker provides details of this data at integrated care board level and for every PCN in England. GP Online subscribers can access individual pages for each ICB, which looks at the data for that area in more detail and provides tables showing information for all of the PCNs in the area so you can see how your network compares to others in your patch. You can also see our ICB ranking table, which shows how all the ICBs compare to each other on all the measures. You can find more information by clicking on the GP Insights section of our website. So Nick, we've talked a lot today about the workforce and this next bit is also basically related to the GP workforce. Last week, NHS England announced the end of two GP retention schemes, which has caused some real concern. Which schemes are being scrapped? NHS England announced that two schemes are being wound up from the end of March. The GP fellowship scheme and the supporting mentors scheme. The GP Fellowship Scheme is a two-year programme of support open to all newly qualified GPs and nurses working in substantive roles in general practice. And it's meant to support GPs and nurses to take on permanent jobs and to keep them in the workforce. And then the Supporting Mentors Scheme runs in parallel. It's a scheme that keeps experienced GPs working in general practice, in primary care, by offering them mentoring roles, broadening out their roles to try and keep them interested in the profession, and at the same time, helping newer GPs benefit from from their knowledge. The RCGP is not very happy about this at all, is it? No. I mean, it, it says the decision to end these schemes is disappointing. And basically, the college says this is the reverse of what should be happening in the, the middle of a workforce crisis. It said that as things stand, general practice needs all the help it can get to retain GPs and absolutely shouldn't be pulling the plug on this kind of support. 
The GP workforce and, and retention in particular is a real central plank of the college's manifesto for general practice, which it, it published at the end of last year. And it's using to kind of lobby MPs on the issues it wants to see kind of addressed in the upcoming election, whenever that might be. I mean, I've spoken to RCGP Chair Professor Camilla Hawthorne on the podcast twice, and, and actually, uh, which you can find in the podcast feed. And actually, in both of those conversations, she mentioned how much the college valued the fellowship model. In one of those conversations, I think she described it as a sort of three plus two training model. So you have your three years of training and then two years in a fellowship role where you get additional support and have opportunities for extra training in areas you might want to develop or the opportunity to develop a particular clinical interest. And the fellowship model sort of eases the transition into independent practice. The BMA is actually currently surveying GP registrars about their future career intentions, um, as well as on a number of other issues. But in terms of their future career intentions, I expect the results of that may not make for particularly happy reading. A similar poll by the BMA in 2022 revealed that one in eight GP registrars did not plan to work as a GP in the NHS when they qualified We know registrars are currently striking with their junior doctor colleagues, and we know that issues behind the strike, including low pay, really affect GP trainees. Workload and stress is is also a huge challenge. The most recent GMC National Training Survey found that more than one in five GP registrars were at high risk of burnout. So, you know, people think about retention schemes and you may think retention schemes are something when you need for doctors who are, you know, in the middle of their career, feeling fed up, overworked after years and years in the job. But actually, those figures I've just mentioned there suggest that it's actually really important to ensure that there are proper retention programs available early on in GPs' careers to help them navigate some of the challenges that could potentially lead them to leave the profession very early on in their careers or alternatively, obviously, as, as everyone talks about at the minute, move overseas. Nick, do we know what's going to happen next with all of this? The NHS Long-Term Workforce Plan, which was published last year, had all these grand plans about growing the workforce, but we know it was really very thin on details about retention. In fact, you know, non-existent on detail about GP retention. But as we've said on the podcast time and time again, retention is so key to making sure general practice has the number of GPs it needs. So what's NHS England going to do? Is it actually replacing these schemes? The RCGP said it's not aware of any immediate plan to replace these schemes or of the the rationale behind the decision. NHS England has said there'll be an update early this year. It's promised to publish information and guidance soon. And it says it'll continue to invest in GP retention in the 2024-25 financial year. So there should be something coming. But the fact that the RCGP doesn't seem to have been consulted about an alternative or even about the decision to wind up the current scheme in the first place means it's really unclear what's going to come next and whether, in fact, any follow-up scheme will be at anything like the same level. So to wait and see on that one. We've just got time for our regular good news section before we go. And this week, it's about the New Year honours. We'd just like to give a brief mention to those GPs and others from the world of primary care who received awards. And actually, there were quite a few this year. You can find a bit more information about some of these people on the story we wrote on our website. So... Professor Pally Hungin, Emeritus Professor of General Practice at Newcastle University, received a knighthood for services to medicine. North Staffordshire LMC Chair Dr Chandra Kanaganti, who's a GP partner in Stoke-on-Trent and also a local councillor, received a CBE for services to general practice. Dr Mina Thacker, a GP partner in West London, received an MBE for services to the NHS. 
Dr. Donna Cruikshank, a GP in Braemar in Aberdeenshire in Scotland, received an MBE for services to the medical profession and to the community of Braemar. He's worked as a GP partner in the rural community for more than 29 years. Dr. Fiona Butler, a GP in West London, received a British Empire Medal for services to the community in West London. Dr. Jane Wilcock, Chair of the Northwest Faculty of the RCGP and a GP in Greater Manchester, was also awarded a British Empire Medal for services to general practice in Bolton. Dr. Cathy Hubbard, a GP in Liverpool and the founder of the city's Woodland Hospice Charitable Trust, received a British Empire Medal for services to palliative care. Dr. Terry John, a GP in Waltham Forest in North East London and a past chair of the BMA's International Committee, was also awarded a British Empire Medal for Services to Medicine. Aside from GPs, Advanced Nurse Practitioner Debbie Brown, who's Clinical Director for the Lewisham Community Education Provider Network Training Hub in South London, was awarded an MBE for Services to Nursing and the NHS. And Christiana Mellum, who is Chief Executive of the National Association of Link Workers, and a former Talking General Practice guest and friend of the podcast also received an MBE for services to social prescribing. Congratulations to all of those individuals. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks to Nick and thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week, so please do join me then. And don't forget, you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting general practice on our website at gponline.com. <laughs>